had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. I'm in love with Could you. make me be true. Snap out of it. Could make me be true. Magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. Hello, romantics. Welcome to a pod to be you, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and I have a extremely exciting guest for you. Um, this is the creator and editor of License to Queer, um, David Lowbridge Ellis. How are you? Hello, it's a great pleasure to be here talking Thank you. about romantic films. Yes, yes, I'm so I'm so excited. I've been actually wanting to have you on this podcast to talk about James Bond for a really long time. Oh, great! Um, ever since I was introduced to your uh, your site and your podcast and everything that you're doing, um, I've been you know I've been such a fan of James Bond for uh, almost all my life, pretty much, oh, wow. and. Um, and so when I was reading all of your all of your all your articles and listening to your podcast, I was like, "Wow, this is such a great take on the character and the franchise." Um, and so I'm really happy that you're here to talk about. Uh, I think one of my favorite Bond movies, and and definitely one that I feel like represents this podcast the most, which is mm-hmm. uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, um, with the uh, great George Lazenby and Diana Rigg. Um, but first, I'd love to just kind of have you tell the listeners a little bit about, about your about your work and kind of your whole history with 007 and all the sort of really cool uh, insights that you've had about about him as you've you know been exploring the character. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm kind of bowled, bowled over, really. Thank you for those <laughs> kind words. Um, and that's what I do it for, really, because I I, I felt that there were not enough um, queer voices about Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it was pretty much non-existent when I started the website back in April 2020. And now I have about, uh, it's about 15 regular people who contribute to the website, either in podcasts or articles. Um, and uh, there are some, there are some queer allies on there as well. Um, but uh, mostly queer people, because I have always loved James Bond, like yourself. But the, there is there was a brief period in my life where I thought but James Bond wasn't for me because mm-hmm. I was a, a queer person. I identify as gay and cisgender, although I'm not really kind of um, a, a big fan of any labels, really. Uh, but I I always there was a point in my life where I thought, oh, James Bond's not for me because it's this kind of heteronorm- heteronormative symbol. And um, everyone always says it's, you know, James Bond is the the man that men want to be and women want between their sheets. And there's an assumption there that it's what straight men want to be. I've always wanted to be James Bond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know there are some queer uh, um, men who want to kind of more identify with the Bond girls and some of the villains. But for me, I always wanted to be James Bond. Um, and I'm not alone in that. And there's a lot of women who want to be James Bond as well and um, queer women and uh, women who aren't queer. So I wanted to kind of create a space for as many different voices as possible where everybody could feel welcome. So um, I'm very active on social media. It's kind of turned into sort of a, as well as the articles and the, the content that I produce, it's almost like a living your queer life as James Bond sort of uh, lifestyle type approach as well so it's kind of putting queer people in the james bond space um which as i say i i I didn't really see out there there were a couple of um uh gay commentators um who were relatively high profile uh when i started but really nothing much beyond that so Mm -hmm. now i've got on the website points of view from lesbian bond fans bisexual bond fans trans bond fans asexual bond fans so yeah i'm really enjoying what i do which is not the day job (laughs) this is kind of like something i started it as a as a project during at the start of the pandemic because i'd had it in my head for years 
and um i'm i'm just i'm just really pleased that it's taken off and i have feedback like the feedback you've just given me yeah i mean you know it's so interesting because you know i um i was just listening to uh your podcast uh where you kind of read your article about um about james bond running and i thought that's such a such an interesting angle that i i would never have um considered or thought about and um i it's it's so funny because like i i think james bond people tend to think of it as very heteronormative very you know uh colonist very um you know uh very masculine Mm -hmm. but i think there's you know, especially in like the seventies era, you know, there's such a like campy theatricality to it as well. And, um, and in the eighties too. And I mean, there can't be like, there's something a little, a little queer about sort of like this, like these like lavish women in these like gorgeous gowns and, you know, almost these like, like elaborate layers. Way. Exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah. almost like drag. It's that really heightened, whatever, you know, drag is really hard to define, isn't it? But it's yeah. that re- for me, it's that really heightened reality, right. which I think Bond always does really well. And yeah. I know things have sort yeah. of taken a bit more of a realistic turn in the Daniel Craig era, but still right. there is that there is that heightened reality and definitely what you just said about the the things becoming more camp from the seventies and eighties. But at the same time, I actually think the queerest period for bond was the Mm sixties, which I know is what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We're talking about honor Majesty's secret service, which is I think an outlier in the series for a number of reasons. Of course, the most obvious being that, it is the first and last appearance by George Lazenby um, as Bond, um, and uh, I just have to ask, like, what's your in general, like, what's your take on the film? Like, what's your take on Lazenby? Um, uh, yeah, and... I've always, I've always loved Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and mm-hmm. I know that's you know, it's cool to like Honor Majesty's Secret Service nowadays. Yeah, it, it is always... very cool now. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't always been, but I do promise you, I have always loved Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I'm not retconning that. Um, and I think I've loved it because, and I know we're going to get into this in some detail. It is a tragic, doomed love story, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I won't say I'm anywhere near an expert like yourself on romance movies um because to be honest the only ones that i've uh, until f- relatively recently the only ones that i ever really uh, enjoyed were the doomed ones <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i think um i think uh, and and that's i know we'll get into that but that's definitely something to do with my queerness um and yeah to, to i know there are there are some people who claim to be bond fans and I'm not going to do any gatekeeping or any here, but there are some people who claim to be Bond fans who are like, but I just won't watch on a Majesty's Secret Service. Like people who love James Bond and mm. love every other film, but they just refuse to watch on Majesty's Secret Service because they think it's going to be a girly film. Uh-huh. And I, I, th- those people are in a very small minority. The vast majority yeah. of Bond fans that I know, uh, queer or not, uh, men, women, non-binary, Whoever, the, most of them love Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, or at least are prepared to watch it like the others. But there are there is there is sometimes the odd tweet or Instagram message or a a, a post in a, a message board somewhere that says, um, "Yeah, I just won't watch this one." And it it does tend to be a certain type of man. It has to be said, perhaps uh, with a somewhat fragile masculinity, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole TED talk about kind of what that says about the individual saying that this is the the girly James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. mean, that's very it's very telling, I think. Um, but I mean, it does have this reputation of being the like one where the romance was taken seriously, um, and I, I think in general, you know, for the most part, you know the love stories in each James Bond movie, I think in the moment are taken seriously. You know, they are, um, they're trying, at least the filmmakers are trying to sell it as this is the, you know, they're, they're in love for this adventure. And then, you know, she's either forgotten or, or something, 
But I think with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, partially I think because Diana Rigg and George Lazenby are pretty much the same age. I think she's a year, she's a she's a little bit older than him by a few yeah, months. Yeah, I think she's a year older. She's yeah. a year older. So um they just have the yeah, you know, she has this like maturity to her. She has like the way she carries herself. I mean, she's you know she's an established actress. She has done a lot of work and she's still working to this day. So um I didn't know if you were aware, but sadly, Diana Rigg did pass, did pass away relatively recently. Oh, God, no, of course, yeah, but I, what I mean is that she she was working in, in, up until... Oh, yeah, yeah. She, you know, have, you seen, death, um, um, have you seen Last Night in Soho? The no, I haven't. Yeah. That's, uh, I only watched that uh, myself a couple of uh, weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I missed it on its initial release, uh, but she has an amazing role in that film, so yeah. right up until the end... She yeah. was yeah, an amazing actress. And I think you're right. Her uh, And this is no disservice to George Lazenby, but it wouldn't work without her. Right. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think the, you know, I think their initial, I, I think what I really appreciate about this love story is that it really starts from kind of a dark place. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. When they have this, you know, already kind of very, uh, dark beginning to the love story. There's already this like um, honesty and authenticity between them, and then it's that way that their 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 romance, their courtship, and their eventual engagement yeah. it all feels very natural and earned because they already have this connection. And I, I think that's something that is missing from you know other love stories in the Bond universe, um, at least for the most part. Um, and so yeah, like what's you know, like, what is it about this this love story in particular that kind of works for you, or that um, stands out amongst other other love interests in the series? Well, I said that I always wanted to be James Bond rather than being the James Bond girl. But if I had to be a James Bond girl, I would be Tracy <laughs> in *On Majesty's Secret Service*. Um, so when we meet Tracy, she's. Uh, She's clearly undergoing significant mental distress. You know, the film opens with her attempting to commit suicide in an incredibly glamorous fashion. It has to be said that dress walking into into the beach. But, you know, even so, she looks fabulous. But clearly it's in inside her head. She's not in a very good place. And this, of course, kickstarts Bond's saviour complex, which he does have probably more in the Fleming novels than he does the films, but it's there in the films to an extent. It's there in Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig version, uh, where Vesper's in the shower um, and she says she can't get the blood off her hands, an intensely romantic scene. And that's really the scene where they fall in love. So when Bond has to demonstrate some empathy, for other people, which Bond doesn't always do <laughs> terribly brilliantly. Um, I think that, and I think that's probably why it works because we're not used to necessarily seeing James Bond care that much for somebody else. And, but if she was very passive and um, didn't have agency herself, we, we also wouldn't buy the romance. Mm -hmm. So she, the film opens of course, with her, racing ahead of him overtaking and for, for bond um uh, uh, one of the one of bond's biggest um turn-ons is is a woman who can drive really well or right. do very <laughs> mannish things <laughs> so yeah. very masculine behaviors actually um get bond going <laughs> and um and, and and so that that sets that sets the tone really for the rest of the film because tracy is very much bond's equal and the film very carefully sustains that all the way through. Yes, she does get kidnapped by the villain, so she becomes a bit like a damsel, but it's pure luck that she's taken and Blofeld doesn't see Bond in the avalanche. And then yeah. when she is actually imprisoned by Blofeld, she's, she's instrumental in making sure that the mission succeeds which is one of my favourite scenes in any Bond movie, yeah. where she distracts Blofeld by pretending to fancy him and quotes poetry at him. Uh, incidentally, one of the scenes written by a gay man uh, in Honor Majesties. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot that makes it work, but the the fact that they are presented 
as more equals than in most Bond stories is pretty fundamental. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, a few years ago, I wrote a, I, on my own personal blog, I, I did like a ranking of all the Bond movies. Yeah. And, um, and I, I had like one thing that I always kept track of, which is like what I call the O James moment, which is oh, kind yeah. of where the Bond girl like suddenly becomes like useless and helpless and yeah. like completely, uh, you know, unable to function without Bond saving her. And it's, in some of the most, in some cases, it's like an, another agent or, um, mm-hmm. or someone else. And I mean, it doesn't happen often, but there is definitely a time when, like, you know, you have someone who's very capable and strong, presented as very strong, and then she becomes, you know, um, very, uh, uh, you know, very helpless. Uh, but what I love about Tracy is that she never has that moment. She never has okay. that thing where she loses her, you know, her spark or where she has to be the damsel. I mean, even when she is a damsel in distress, she's not really in distress because she's able to, as you say, like do that, um, you know, like recite poetry to Blofeld to try to distract him. And and that's, it's a very, it's a very fun moment. It allows Diana Rigg to, you know, play a lot, a few different shades and to have some fun as well. And I think, um, I, I I think that it's such a um I love what you say about, you know, Bond being attracted to, you know, these sort of like masculine traits. I think that really connects to your kind of queer analysis mm. as well. Um, that there's this um you know, I I think one thing that you've mentioned um is that this like performative quality of Bond's masculinity. Yes. And I think I think a lot of his attraction to these very headstrong and um you know, very like, you know, pussy galore, for instance, like these types mm. of women, I think that is, I think there's a queerness to it. I think definitely, um, uh, definitely a, a, a well-founded uh, take on the character. Um, so, yeah, so I, I feel that like Tracy just has a lot of, um, she's a lot of personality and she is, you know, she's, um you know, she has a lot of personality, she has a lot of spark to her, but there's also this sense of, like, tragedy that is always hanging over her, and, and part Absolutely. of it is that, like, you know, we know this romance is doomed, having seen the film so many times, and, you know, it's been referenced a few times throughout the series, you know, mm-hmm. kind of vaguely, um, and uh, that this is, like, you know, this this marriage is always kind of hanging over Bond, you know, throughout the rest of you know, and yet, and yet the the, uh, the originally the studio got very nervous and didn't want to end with Tracy being killed. They were going to leave mm. it for the start of the next film. Oh, Can you imagine how that would ruin the film? <laughs> um, especially Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, that's such a like that's a really fun movie. I, I can't imagine that starting with this death. That'd be awful. There are, there are lots of people who don't like Diamonds of Forever because, and I think this is more of a modern sensibility where mm-hmm. we we watch films in sequences, um, yeah. but they don't like Diamonds Forever because Tracy's death is sort of brushed under the carpet. She's not right. mentioned directly in Diamonds at all. And it's sort of like, let's draw a line under this now. But that, that those films were made 50 years ago in a very different climate where we did people didn't necessarily necessarily remember everything that had happened in the previous film right, there were no right. home video releases so and also remember on a magic secret service those profitable did underperform mm-hmm. compared with the connery movies either side of it um and in fact one of the the studio it's one until quite recent until casino royale it was the longest bond film and that was that was obviously going to damage some of the box office right but the right. the studio also got nervous about in the, the we have all the time in the world montage and wanted to take that out i mean what other bond film has a 90 second montage of people falling in love you know essentially a, a bit like a music video yeah. montage but they actually that was one of the scenes that they wanted to take out and the director peter Hunt, was just adamant that if all the scenes in the movie that you want to cut you cannot cut that one yeah, I mean that is like the that's the crux of yeah, the is. whole film. Like you it need is. that for everything to happen. Um because the ending does not work if you don't buy this love story. No. Um and I, I think what what's really interesting about what you're saying, especially about the serialization of movies, I mean that's such a modern mm. thing, mm. you know, and I, I think 
that's something that you know you and i uh i guess i i'm not sure how old you are but i imagine we're around the same age um i, I, I think, think i'm a bit i think i'm quite a bit older than you okay <laughs> i'm 40 so okay uh, I'm, I'm just about seven years younger so same generation um yeah you know that's something that we grew up with <laughs> yeah. um especially nowadays when everything has to be an extended universe and i think even the bond films kind of you know wanted to tap into that um that you know that that the the trend of the shared universe and the 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 Craig movies are all very interconnected, um, and you know Vesper um, hangs over all those films in a very literal sense, um, in the I, same way that Tracy does in a more like abstract sense where she's not really mentioned. It's not really, you know, it's kind of mm. it's you know here and there hints here and there in several films, but you know I don't think. It's not that like um, I don't know. It's just it's it's a different kind of serialization. It, it's not it as it's not I as mean, like literal. It's not completely alien to Bond because yeah. even in the Fleming books, especially as they went on, he did intro- he did refer back to previous girls that Bond had been with. Okay. And interestingly, at the start of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the novel, he does actually visit Vesper's grave. Because he's in the same place, um, mm. so that scene in No Time to Die, where Bond visits Vesper's grave, is is taken from the novel of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, that's interesting. But of course, the idea is that Vesper, who is in the first Bond novel, Casino Royale, which is probably in terms of the novels, apart from Honor Majesty's, the strongest contender to say it's a a romantic, not a romance novel. You mm-hmm. could easily. Um, say that Casino Royale. Um, in fact, I, I know a romance novelist, uh, Roland Hume, who he and I talk about this quite a bit, about the way that that novel is structured and some of the other Bond, movie, Bond novels are structured as as romances, essentially. Yeah. Um, but then the idea is, of course, that Vesper set the template for all of the Bond's relationships and his lack of trust and his problems with being intimate with other people. Um, but obviously in the films, it kind of works the other way around because we we know about Tracy. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like that tragedy is really the reason why Bond can't connect with women, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, since we're talking about, you know, Vesper and, and No Time to Die, I think, you know, Casino Royale and No Time to Die definitely feel like the strongest romances in the bond yeah. franchise after tracy and yeah. um and i i mean casino royale i think like it's i i i think casino royale is like a great screen romance yes. i i think it's um i think that's another bond movie that has a romance montage you know when they're in italy and he's recovering yeah that's the closest we get isn't it you know and they're kind of frolicking on the beach yeah. and yeah um and uh it's it's such an it's such an amazing love story because I think it I I have read Casino Royale I haven't read all the Bond books but I have read Casino Royale and I have read Doctor No and From Russia with Love because I I you know those are I, From Russia with Mel, From Russia with Love is probably my favorite Bond movie mm. either that or Casino Royale I can't decide between the two, um, but uh, I so I have read Casino Royale and I I mean you're just taken with the romance and I think the film was even more successful as a romance because of you know eva green's you know excellent you know amazing performance and her chemistry with daniel craig and you know the the scene where you know um he's comforting her in the shower after that the attack in the hotel is just so it's so tender in a way that you don't really see with bond but with um with vesper he just has this like tenderness to it and and i think um no time to die as well has such a you know a tender romance to it i mean the romance yeah. is the heart of the story um and uh, i i feel like that movie is like more a madeline's movie it's more about her um you know it's more about her like her past her history her her life um and this and so it's uh I don't. I'm a, I'm a big fan of No Time to Die. I, I actually would love to yeah, hear your, your take I, on it. I yeah. really love it as well. For, and pretty much for the reasons you outlined, yeah. it's, it is at its heart a love story. Mm-hmm. And the all this stuff with the nanobots is sort of like, well, in your previous episode of Rear Window, you had a really interesting discussion about MacGuffins. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm always really kind of hyper-conscious of MacGuffins in movies. Yeah. Um, and if you if you don't sell the MacGuffin particularly well, then you kind of notice that it's a MacGuffin. And right. the nanobots do work just about. But yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, in Rear Window, you know, Hitchcock's Rear Window, then you've got a murder, but really the murder is the MacGuffin. <laughs> right, right. It's actually the romance between James Stewart and Grace Kelly, which yeah. we're really interested in. And I feel the same way about No Time to Die. If you're not interested in the romance, then you're probably going to not enjoy the movie as much as those people who are interested in the romance. Yeah. Yeah. And I you know, I feel like with James Bond, you know, the 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 MacGuffins are always sort of like they're there to kind of propel the story, but for me it's always the like the bond elements you know the bond girl the lair the the yeah. gambling scene the you know the locations the action you know to me that's what carry you know, there's always there's always something a little bit you know beyond the plot that um excites me about james bond and for some of those it is the romance you know like on her majesty with secret service which has this really tender tragic romance at its heart and to me that is what that's a driving force of the film for me. Um, and, um, and, you know, even when Bond kind of has his dalliance with, you know, the, the woman at the, um, at the clinic, um, even that to me, is feels a little bit more interesting just because of the angle of the hypnosis or the, um, uh, the. It's interesting. Yeah. In all three of the movies we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. um the girl the girl if we're kind of talking you know bond settling down with the one yeah the girl disappears for massive stretches of the movie Mm -hmm. so in casino royale eva green's vespa doesn't actually turn up on screen for around about an hour yeah so she's not in the first segment the first act of the film uh, but then they make up for lost time with that amazing North by Northwest like train scene. Yeah. And then they meet cute, essentially. Um, Spectre suffers because it doesn't put Madeline more front and center and then makes up for lost time with no time to die. But again, she disappears for um, the first after the titles, after for the, the whole of that first chunk of the film. Right. And then right. on a Majesty's, Tracy disappears, although she's right there at the start, Tracy disappears for around 40, 45 minutes while Bond is up in that clinic. However, because I go through these films really, really in painstaking detail <laughs> when, I produce, <laughs> when I'm writing my articles, what the filmmakers are really clever to keep us in in, in some of these instances anyway, certainly No Time to Die, and um, on a Majesty's Secret Service, they keep uh, they keep us thinking about the woman even when she's not on screen. So on a Majesty's, for instance, when Bond checks into the clinic, um, where he then sleeps his way through most of Blofeld's Angels of De- Death, we only see two, but it's assumed that um, you know he arranges dates with at least a couple more of them. So right. we assume that he slept with a lot of them. Um, during that period when he's checking in and scout those brilliant scenes in hotel rooms where Bond checks it for bugs and things like that, it actually plays not just the main title theme, but it plays We Have All the Time in the World at the same mm. time. So the music associated with Tracy's and Bond's relationship carries on through that segment of at least part of the segment of that movie. And then, of course, when Tracy turns up again and saves the day, rescuing Bond... Um, on her ice skates and then drives them out of danger, then it's almost as if we've, we just kind of forget the preceding 40, 45 minutes where we haven't actually seen her. Yeah. I mean, that's really great. And, and I feel like, you know, the, the music has, yeah, you, you, you keep Tracy in mind and, and you keep her, Yeah, you understand that like, you know, even if Bond is sleeping with, these patients he's still thinking about tracy which is you know something that bond does a lot um sleep with other women while thinking about the one he actually likes um, How do you, i'm just interested because yeah. this this sort of divides bond fans really mm-hmm. it's like how do people and it comes down to everyone's individual values and attitudes towards sex i suppose but what's what's your take on bond you know, sleeping his way through the angels of death um, and then us kind of still buying the relationship with Tracy. I mean, to me, it's, 
that's just a that's an element of James Bond mm. that's always been there and always will be there. I mean, I know that that's toned down way less in the Bond in the Craig movies because I think yeah, you know, for sure nowadays it's probably more, less. It's probably more frowned upon to show him, you know, womanizing, you know. A lot, and also like the Craig movies have the sense of tragedy and and heaviness to them, where you know you can't just kind of do a you know like it was really both surprising and not surprising that there was yeah. no sexual relationship between him and Ana de Armas, you yeah. know, in No Time to Die. It was surprising because I thought you know this if this were made in the seventies, they would definitely be doing good, um, or the filmmakers would definitely be doing that as part of the the, the story, but now it, it's it's not to be done. And, um, you know, also with uh, Olga Kurilenko in Quantum of Solace, yeah. you know, again, it's, you know, what I, I think, you know, nowadays, you know, when we have these, you know, capable women who can, you know, propel the story in their own right, and uh, then to have them be just become like sexual conquests, you know, mm. it kind of weakens their character, I think, in modern eyes. I don't think that's always, ha- I don't think that always has to be the case, but I think that's definitely going to be something that they consider. Whereas I think in in, in the 60s and 70s um, and 80s, I think, you know, it might not have been like, quote unquote, okay, but it was part of the, the tropes of Bond and part of what, for me, it's part of like what you go to see a Bond before. You know, you, you know there's the, there's the main Bond girl and there's the disposable one. Or yeah. I, I hate the word disposable. That sounds I know, terrible. I know but exactly like, what you mean. But yeah. there's the one that, like, you know, there's like, I guess like the 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 romance one and the sex one. You know, that sounds yeah terrible that, too. But like, it's when you say it nowadays, it sounds awful. And I, <laughs> but well, like the Bond films actually, there are some exceptions, but the Bond films yeah. are actually surprisingly monogamous mm-hmm. when you when you kind of stretch things out, because usually one of the girls dies before he then moves on to the next yeah. one. <laughs> right, right, so that's you true. you only live twice is the most obvious example of that, really. Yeah. And, you know, Thunderball's a bit different because the bad girl, uh, Fiona, you know, he's, he's sleeping with her at the same time, being romantically interested in Domino. Um, but, yeah, it, it's as, as time's gone on, they've kind of stressed that monogamy more, but it's quite interesting. I think, I think it's really interesting in Honor Majesties because a lot of people say, you know, how could he sleep with all of these girls, even though it's essentially his job, how could he sleep with all of these girls while, you know, and it still be a romance movie because, you know, he's been romantically interested in Tracy. They've fallen in love. They've already sort of picked out the wedding ring, you see right. him go to the same jewelry shop later on. Um, but who's to say that she's being monogamous? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it would have been, it would have been very taboo breaking in 1969 to show a woman sleeping around as much as Bond does. Yeah. But there's you know, there's there's no there's no rules necessarily in place here to say that she's not have to had to, you know, or chosen to um I, I just I just think those sorts of dialogues they they shut down some possibilities for some people and i know mm-hmm. i know some people in polyamorous relationships who very much kind of relate to on a majesty's secret service um because it has that dimension to it right yeah that's interesting i mean i i have to say i don't think i ever really thought about it um in in that much detail and i think it's really interesting to 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 you know to think about uh that part of bond's character and i I love the the polyamorous mm. uh take on it that's so interesting because i i, I think in the moment I, I think what what saves a lot of bond's sort of more womanizing characteristics is that i think at the moment he he means it you know it's not yeah. i i don't think he's um I, I I think he like he romances each woman in a very genuine way. And, you know, whether she survives the movie or whether he has to leave her or something, I think in the moment he meant it and it's supposed to be taken seriously and genuinely. Mm. 
with the angels of death i'm not sure um i i agree with you but with the angels of death you do get the feeling that bond's having to go through sex as a transaction right there's that yeah. hilarious line i was fortunate enough to see on majesty's on a on a big screen with a, a a big audience of people fairly recently and the line um where he says um that was an inspiration um, <laughs> and then he he um he uh says um sort of sotto voce he says uh, what's the exact line oh you'll need to be because you know yeah. <laughs> it's like oh god i've just had sex with one of them to try and get information i've got to do it all over again so for, for you know he i and again as a as a gay person i'm i sort of relate to those moments because he is sort of having to kind of pretend to be something he isn't right uh, which is this kind of sexual lothario um who you know can sleep his way through all of the angels but really he's not and the irony the brilliant irony of that whole sequence is that he's playing essentially a gay coded character right you know, he's he's as hillary brown <laughs> and that they assume that of course i know what he's allergic to uh one of joanna lumley's lines in the film um mm-hmm. yeah so i i love that whole sequence and there's i mean a I think a lot of, I think in this sequence in particular, and a few times throughout the series, you know, James Bond does sleep with a woman for some kind of access to information yes. or something. There's something a little honeypot about it. Like, oh, definitely. You know, like like that Matahari stereotype that often yeah. women have to do. Like, yeah. I mean, how many times have we seen like a woman spy movie where she has to like seduce someone or at least like pretend to seduce someone? for um for some kind of yeah. information or to like to yeah, assassinate someone or whatever and I, I think you know bond having to do that a lot especially in this movie i think really is a kind of a unique twist on oh, i think so this too. like womanizing agent um yeah especially in movies like the spy who loved me or um um oh god what was i just thinking about um but yeah so i think there's definitely i, I think it's a little bit trickier and a little bit thornier, a little bit more interesting than I think a lot of people might assume about Bond, especially in Majesty's Secret Service. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the the angels, and I I do have to bring up just as a person of color that mm. the racial stereotyping mm. in their scenes are a little much. Um, oh gosh, yeah. Almost, it's so comical to me because it's so like obvious and blunt that it kind of wraps back around to being like ironic or funny um yeah but you know this movie does have that unfortunate legacy and i wanted to bring it up just because yeah yeah it's something that is really noticeable now yeah and again when i saw it in the cinema recently yeah it was that kind of um awkward laughter yeah because of some of those moments so the lady eating the banana for instance yeah that's really that's really awful really ouch and the audience that i was with um yeah it it really jumped out to everybody yeah um but you know having said that i i think that's sort of you know i mean i hate to say that it's seen to me, it's part of the like colonist angle oh, bond. That's a little bit hard to. Um, it's a little hard to stomach. I mean, I I think, you know, it's. I feel it feels really. Um, it feels really. Uh, a, it feels really. Um, like noticeable in this movie, just because for the mm. most part, this movie is very. Um, it looks very. It looks really good. Like uh, the like visually, it's very sophisticated in a lot of ways. You know, this has this really important romance, and the, you know, even if this like world domination plot is kind of outlandish, um, for the like, I think this movie has a really great sense of its tone, and it's yeah. um, it takes itself just seriously enough that you could buy this like doomed romance, you know, vibe aesthetic even with all like the bond trappings. Um, so to have something so uh, just ugly and out and awful and, and really just like um, tone deaf, like that sequence, it just sticks out more just because I think this oh, movie okay. is really yeah. good and really strong in every other sense, except for that one part, which you know, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but I just had to bring it up because I feels like it really does leave a bad taste in the mouth. 
Yeah, and there are lots and lots of elements of Bond that nowadays we would use the term problematic. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I'm always keen to stress is we should never look past those and we should never just brush them under the carpet. Exactly. You can, you can find those elements uncomfortable, like, you know, the treatment of gay people in the next Bond film, you know, <laughs> Winter yeah. Kid. I was just like, oh, God. You know, um, in many ways, deeply, deeply distressing as, as, a, as a gay person to watch. But at the same time, there are uh, positives in their betrayal um, and there are lots of other positive and even the parts where there aren't positive betrayals of certain characters that are racially stereotyped. Um, I, I think it's better to have a discussion about those and open up that. And, you know, we can't we can't change the past necessarily, uh, but certainly not to, um, you know, go so far as cancelling things and it's really important that we have those discussions. It does have some bearing, though, on what, you know, what we're mostly talking about in terms of romance, because the Bond producers did take some bold steps towards um, giving Bond partners who weren't white. Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't it doesn't sometimes it's kind of, you know, a bit of a half baked approach. I mean, we he does. Um, he does, uh, and again, you could say it's Orientalist. The just just the idea of him going around the world and sleeping with women, but not kind of treating them um, treating them right. Um, but at the same time, he you know he did go to Japan and had relationships with um, some Japanese women in the preceding film, and then in Live and Let Die, that film got into a lot of trouble for Bond um, and it was banned in some southern states of the US mm -hmm. because Bond does have a relationship with a black character and the less said about um, <laughs> perhaps uh, the casting of Jane Seymour as a Creole princess <laughs> the right, better right. Um, but and, and the, if you think about Octopussy as well so Octopussy is for a large part is set in India but actually the the main love interest is played by a Swedish actress. I think nowadays, if you were to make that film, the temptation might be to make Octopussy Indian herself. Right. Um, but but yeah, th there is that um there is that vein of um kind of problematic representation throughout all of Bond, really. And it, it it's definitely it's always worth talking about. Yeah. It's it's the it's you know I I tend to, um, I I tend to sort of like reconcile that by saying that you know this is, you know Ian Fleming for all of his talents as a writer, was definitely not someone who was uh, enlightened I should say, in terms of, of that and you know he has his own um, problems and and biases and prejudices uh, and so. I, I tend to reconcile with saying that like this is just the world that these movies take place in and that you know they don't reflect reality in any way you know these are fantasies first and foremost and so that um you know i don't have to take my life lessons from james bond but at the um, same time lots of people yeah. do and yeah. I've, I've made the i've made the point endlessly that i am somewhat unhealthily obsessed with james <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. there are so many parts of James Bond where I sort of take my cues from mostly kind of like the superficial lifestyle stuff like clothes and you know uh, cocktails and all that kind of stuff um but I mean if you if you think about the controversy that attended um a double o agent in fact double o seven being played by a black woman in no time to die um then those attitudes are out there and I think it's wrong if we just assume that they're not so I think what the Bond series has done, um, and I include Fleming in this, and yes, you're absolutely right, Fleming does have, there are some of the novels which um, I find quite difficult to read certain passages because they do reflect bygone attitudes, um, per particularly towards not just uh, queer people, but um, especially towards, um, uh, towards uh, people of different races. Um, but I think at least there is that representation and this is certainly how i see it with the queer representation at least those people are there in the story yeah and yes for some viewers it may reinforce prejudices and stereotypes that they already have but for for you know it, 
for others it 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 helps us to see those those people um in a, uh, people who might be different to our, to ourselves in in a different light sometimes mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely and i agree and, and i think that you know the you know the the craig era for sure learned a lot of lessons and kept up with the times in a lot of ways um and uh, I there feel... is an argument that the Craig era, particularly Skyfall and Spectre, was quite regressive in terms of representation of women. Mm. Um, and I I do get that, you know, particularly the character of Severine in Skyfall. I think yeah. they could fix that very, very easily right. by having Bond express some degree of regret that she's killed by yeah. Silver, whereas he actually comes across as quite callous. Um, and but there are, you know, and some people have an issue. Um, I don't, but some people have an issue with Bond sleeping with Monica Bellucci after her husband's funeral. Um, you know, she's a very vulnerable. Um, oh, sure, sure. Scene. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I get where that's coming from, and I think No Time to Die went went a substantial way towards kind of bringing us back up to where we were with Casino Rail and Quantum of Solace in that regard. I mean, is No Time to Die the first Bond movie where the, no woman dies? <laughs> I feel like... Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I would have to go back and watch them, but I'm thinking like, you know, uh, Nomi is still, you know, she's still around. Mm. Paloma is, of course, reigning mm. supreme and, and mm-hmm. you know, she's amazing. We, we love... Madeline is all riding off with their child, and Money Penny is still around. I mean, unless there's someone else, I, I, I at least of all like the no, major, right. you know, the right. major stars, they've all yeah, survived. Yeah. And I think Bond doesn't really sleep with anyone in this movie either. No, I, but again, we sort of he does pick up or get picked up by Nomi when sure. he's in Jamaica. So yeah. I would assume that he has not been celibate for five years. Right, right, but. A, Again, the Bond films are sort of conservative in this regard. Mm-hmm. They very rarely show Bond sleeping with someone else while he's romantically entangled with the main girl. Yeah. There are exceptions. So for your eyes only, that does happen. But it is it is an exception. Right. Yeah, I mean, to kind of take it back to uh, the 60s era and Honor Majesty's mm. Secret Service, I know, like, initially I wanted to talk about From Russia with Love um, yeah. before remembering that Honor Majesty... I, it was such I think a, that's a whole separate podcast. From yeah, Russia. yeah. It's a, yeah it's, we can give it a go if you want. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, I just wanted to, to kind of bring up, like, you know, the 60s era and Bond, like, you know, we had Tatiana, who I think is, yeah. um, you know, a great love interest. And Honey Ryder, of course, is, you know, iconic. And she set the template for, you know, the, a lot of these Bond romances. Um, and, um, you know, Pussy Galore, I mean, that's a can of worms I don't want to open. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, we have... Uh, you mentioned you only live twice, um, which is also kind of interesting, and uh, Domino in Thunderball, which mm-hmm. I really, li- I really like that. Um, I really like Domino. I'm not a big fan of Thunderball, but I do like her. Her. I love that she's the only Bond girl who gets to d- kill the main villain. Right. Exactly. Um, and she's she's one of of many um, Bond girls that have their own kind of plot line that. That intersects with bonds, um, and and I always appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, like of this like sixties era, you mentioned that was like it's more like bond at its queerest. Like, what's kind of the um, you know, what's what's your like the take on on that? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so here in the UK, then until the late nineteen sixties, homosexuality was actually uh, illegal. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it was only partially decriminalized. It's actually a myth that suddenly overnight everything was okay. because even up until the 90s, I could have been, um, you know, arrested for kissing a man in public. So, um, yes. But within that climate, I think there was um, I think there's a degree of pushback in Bond in a way to gender norms, certainly. Um, And I... I think that it's so queer in the 60s because um, Bond himself, um, as played by Sean Connery, 
in and and then to an extent but not quite as much by George Lazenby um embodies both masculine and feminine qualities and I think you get this right from the very beginning in Doctor No when Bond first appears and I, I spent like about 4,000 words breaking down just that opening scene and every element of Bond's first appearance where you see his hands with the cars, the cigarette case mm-hmm. and everything else and then finally introduces himself copying a woman's formulation so he actually copies Sylvia Trench's uh, Trench's yeah. line so famously you know obviously Bond James Bond but he's copying Trench Sylvia Trench so even in that very opening scene especially in that very opening scene if you were to make a list of things that would you know mark a gay man, man out as different to um a straight man most of those things on that list would be kind of more feminine qualities actually right from bond's inception we have bond demonstrating quite feminine qualities um that we would associate with a gay sensibility i i wrote uh, my my doctor no piece was one of the longest that i wrote for the website i think it was about thirteen thousand words Mm -hmm. because right from the i felt the responsibility anyway because right i wanted to say right from the beginning Bond has always been something of a queer character, particularly with gender. Um, although there's nothing explicitly in there really about him um, ha- feeling attracted towards someone other than cisgendered women, um, I think that's probably where most of the queerness comes from. And also, let's not forget that for something to be heteronormative, it means that the only normal and natural, I hate those words, but the only normal and natural relationship is between one man and one woman for the purposes of procreation. Right. Right. Okay. So until very recently, no procreation in a Bond film. Uh, one man and one woman. Yes. you. But in Bond, Bond does have sex with multiple women in most of the stories um they don't tend to be joined by a third or somebody else but then again if you look in from russia with love it's one of the rare examples of a threesome in a bond film uh because you have in fact perhaps in the films themselves although the publicity materials sometimes hint that bond's having sex with two women at the same time it only happens on screen i believe once and that's in from russia with love right. when they go to the fight at the um the the camp and he's expected to choose the victor um and he he uh he decides to um sleep with them both and then make his decision although we never actually find out what bond's decision is so i think there's probably a bit more playfulness with sex and gender in those 60s movies and then certainly perhaps some early 70s as well but then by the late 70s, and I've written about this fairly recently when I tackled The Spy You Love Me in detail, there seems to be something of a backlash against some of those freedoms. And I think it was because of the increased visibility of um, not just the gay rights movement, but also um, the, that next wave of feminism was coming in. And so I think that but from The Spy Who Loved Me onwards, they seem to be a little bit reactionary and make mm. Bond more heteronormative than he was before. That still doesn't st- or heteronormative apart from him being really hyper masculine and then um, sleeping his way through more women than he ever did before. Mm. Wow, that's really that's really insightful. Um, and I yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, thank you. Um, I and I mean I would have to go back and, and kind of watch this uh, the series in chronological order, uh, which I I feel like I hardly ever do. I feel like I just pick and choose from each era and then. Oh, I totally you know, do the same. I've um, never, but, I've only ever so, watched them in order once. I think. Yeah, um, but, but it's not necessarily the best that. way to do it. No, I I don't think so either because I I think there are definitely some boundaries that I prefer more than others. And I think some of the ones that I don't like tend to drag on and make me lose interest in watching all of them. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, that's really, really insightful. Um, and I, you know, I've always tracked bond through. It's like um, how it keeps up with like filmmaking trends, you know, like as, as somebody gets really popular in the mainstream, then bond does that, you know, a couple of years later. And I find that to be really interesting. Um, like for example, um, you know the parkour sequence 
in Casino yeah. Royale is kind of a directly tied to parkour being really popular in the 2000s um, in the U.S. So, uh, I, I'd love to track it politically. I don't. I don't think I really thought to do that just because for me, I, like I said, like Bond is just like it's the fantasy. I can compartmentalize it as its own little universe that has its own rules and, and ideas and whatever. But uh, I think I think, think about Manish, what you're, you're trying to be diplomatic here and yeah. succeeding, by the way, because yeah. I I sometimes do think myself, oh my god, am I over intellectualizing Bond here? Right, right. <laughs> but at the same time, I there's I what I'm always trying to do is I'm trying to work out why I have such a strong connection with Bond as yeah. a queer person, because everything on the surface looks as if I shouldn't, yeah. in a way. Um, and often when I embark upon, you know, one of these analyses of one of these films, I find out, I sort of do sort of know these things unconsciously, but then I find out psychologists and sociologists and historians and whoever have kind of already studied these aspects, not specifically for Bond, but then like, you know, that reaction against gay rights and women's rights movements in the late 70s. I'd never made that connection with Bond before, but that's the reason why Bond becomes more comic booky in mm -hmm. Spy Love Me and Moonraker. And because, you know, he's, you know, there's that scene in Moonraker where the operative, the MI6 operative in the hotel room, or is it... Uh, what do you do in Rio for five hours if you don't, three hours or five hours, if you don't samba? And he just starts undressing a dressing gown. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I know because those movies are so comic booky, and and I mean that in the best you know sense of the word, I'm not looking down on comic books at all. I love comic books, right. graphic novels and so on forth. But because they are hyper real and what you were saying, they are so fantasy you kind of almost don't have a problem with it. Whereas if it was in any other film and you just start randomly undressing uh, someone on the sofa without asking permission or or whatever, then, you know, we're going to have a problem with this. Um, but it's partly because, and some people will have a problem with it, of course, and that's perfectly legitimate to feel that way. Um, yeah. But um, it, it was very much, I, I believe, a reaction against... Um, if you weren't a straight white man, you might have felt a little bit under threat at that point. So it was almost like giving you license to do those things. Right. And I'm not saying Bond is responsible for, you know, people doing, um, you know, horrendous sexual harassment and, and all that sort of stuff. But if you were to take it out of that fantasy context, that's that we would feel more awkward about it, wouldn't we? Right, right, exactly. That's a great point. Um, so one thing I will say um, before we finish up here is that um, I really do appreciate uh, sort of having this like more insightful conversation about Bond and sort of how it, how it kind of plays to all these different elements because I do feel that a lot of commentary on Bond, especially I've been noticing a lot of, um, a lot of like uh, reluctance to, really appreciate Bond, uh, you know, in the film, Twitter, online space, just because, especially with, like, the Mission Impossible movies becoming really popular in the last, mm. you know, decade or so, and um, and that, like, has that, you know, has Mission Impossible kind of replaced sort of Bond as this, like, dinosaur, and I think it's interesting because, to me, I feel is that, like, the Craig era is all about Bond as dinosaur, you know, and yeah, and how I mean, I think they even call him a dinosaur in, in the films, but and how to sort of reconcile you know the the this the past legacy with how modern times have changed, and to me that's really interesting, and I um, I'm excited to see where the franchise goes now, um, and you know, every couple of months there's always some new thing of like oh this person's in the running or this person wants to play Bond and. You know, to me, it's like, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, I, I, right now, I feel like they're kind of still understanding and unpacking the Craig era and mm. um, to see where they want to go from here. I think No Time to Die has a lot of elements that I would love to see continued um, um, in the so, future. And we'll see um, we'll see how that goes. One thing that I would love for them to bring back is Sylvia Trench. I, was such, I love her in her mm. two roles. I think... Um, 
I love the idea of Bond having this like long-standing girlfriend who never <laughs> gets to have sex with him or always gets interrupted by work. I know in From Russia with Love, he does, you know, he does spend some more time with her. But um, I love the idea of Bond having this like you know long-standing date that um, gets interrupted or kind of has to be. Uh, left behind a lot of the time and i wish they would bring her back at least once just because i i think she's i don't i i think stefan character and you're absolutely right i mean he does take his catchphrase from her so um i agree she's definitely a a cornerstone of the of the franchise sylvia trench was supposed to come back in goldfinger yeah yeah but because they changed director that was she 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 disappeared um i love that scene in from russia with love where she says uh that's what you said and then you disappeared to jamaica for six months yeah. and she um and she has again i a bit like tracy in honor majesties i presume that sylvia trench has not been celibate for right. the no, whole period that james bond no. has been away um and i think that gives an awful i think that's incredibly empowering because bond always does that so why should a woman necessarily um have to be celibate when he isn't exactly exactly so any final thoughts on honor magic secret service on you know 007 and love anything to kind of conclude the episode i just think that more people need to be open to interpreting bond stories as romance stories they are mm-hmm. essentially structured very similarly on the surface bond stories are like overcoming the monster stories the villain but then you know those overcoming the monster stories usually have some form of reward and they are you know the princess for instance you know james bond draws very heavily on myths like saint george and the dragon um and in most versions of that story he gets a woman for the prize at the end but then threading that relationship through the film i think the best the most romantic Bond films successfully uh, thread that relationship through the film and don't treat the woman just as a reward. And I think the three examples that we've spent most time talking about, Honor Majesty's um, Casino Royale and No Time to Die, do that really well. So um, I think I think people just need to be more open to seeing Bond in those terms. Um, and I think that's what Ian Fleming, to be honest, intended um, right from the beginning. If people haven't ever read a Bond novel... I would actually start with Casino Royale because they will find it quite eye-opening, at least, you know, a bit like the film version. Um, I thought it was quite brave in the film version to spend the last half an hour um, essentially doing the love story. I know it's got action sequences in it, but I was really delighted when they Mm -hmm. did that. And um, if you like that, then I'd, I'd urge you to read the original book as well, which does that really, really well. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with all your points. Uh, I, I just want to say that, you know, the ending of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and the ending oh. of Casino Royale, just heartbreaking. And, oh, you know, yeah. for a movie that is ostensibly a, you know, action movie um, and one that has a lot of, you know, out over the top elements to its plotting to really stick the landing there and to really create this element of just high tragedy. Um, you really feel it. And I think, you know, George Lazenby, I, you know, he, he, he pulls it off in a way that you wouldn't really expect from someone who was a model and who kind of did this on a lark, it seems like, and then kind of decided against returning. But I think this movie takes itself so just seriously enough that it can really, capture you with these emotional gut punches. Um, And I I think it's the same for Casino Royale and definitely for No Time to Die, which have these, you know, almost operatic endings, Um, especially No Time to Die. I think the ending is so just beautiful. Um, I know I alluded to it earlier, but what you've just said about the endings, all three of those endings are tragedy endings. Yeah. And as as a queer person, when I was growing up, I cannot recall a single story that I I saw, I've subsequently gone back and found some and there are more of them coming out now, Uh, but where you have a queer love story that ends happily. Right. And I think that's why 
the Bond films work for me as romance stories, whereas many other romance stories. So, you know, um, I'm not the world's biggest rom-com fan. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, maybe there's a degree of internalized homophobia going on there because they are horrible term chick flicks and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, I, I do watch the odd romantic comedy and generally enjoy them. But I always feel what I'm watching is even more fantastical than something like James Bond, because how do those happy endings ever exist? Now, I'm coming from the point of view of someone who's been in a long term relationship for 14 years. So, you know, I do know that those sorts of endings exist. But even so, I still I, I, I there's, there's still a paucity of queer love stories that end happily. Um, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to do with Licensed Queer as well, you know, show that, you know, it's not all misery. <laughs> I, I write about some quite hard hitting stuff yeah. sometimes, you know, mental health and suicide and really kind of hard hitting stuff, which, you know, romance stories deal with as well. Um, or at least the romance stories that that I tend to like, like on A Majesty's Secret Service. But at the same time, I'd like to think that happy endings are possible for everybody. Well, on that wonderful note, um, please tell us where uh, where we can find all your um, all your work, uh, David. Um, thank you for being here, and yeah, please clue in the listeners of where they can find you. So, all the James, I do write um, kind of. Uh, academic stuff beyond Bond (laughs) Um, which you can kind of find from uh, my social media at David T. Lowbridge that's my kind of uh, professional account so if you're in education you might be interested in those but Queerness creeps into a lot of that as well but the James Bond stuff is licensed queer Um, that's licensed spelt the UK way uh, like the film title from 1989, so we two seats. So licensed to queer, and that's the same on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Not yet done TikTok because I don't understand, uh, but uh, I will get around to it probably. But the website is licensed to queer.com. Uh, as I say, I'm very active on social media, so please do get in touch if, uh, if you've listened to this and enjoyed it. If you want signposting to pieces of activity stuff, please search for on the website so if you type in the name of a particular one, story character or an actor or composer or a particular queer identity lesbian gay bisexual trans asexual etc then you'll find hopefully the content that you want i think i haven't counted recently but there's about ooh, getting off a quarter of a million words worth of analysis on licensedgreer.com by me and um, um, lots of other people as well so uh, hopefully something there for everybody yes um, yes please uh, thank you uh, yeah thanks for that and, and please listeners check out David's really uh, amazing work um, I, I really I truly uh, unique and insightful take on, on Bond and all your research and and insights really uh just incredible so thank you so much for being here um really i'm glad to have had you on the podcast to talk about not only one one of my favorite kind of long-running franchises but one of my favorite elements about it which is you know the bond girl the romance the 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 the, uh, the love story uh angle um you can find me on twitter at vertigay 314 um, also, please follow the podcast at It Pod to Be You. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show to help people find the show. Um, David, thank you again. It was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, I really am excited um, to continue checking out your work. And um, yeah, really, really happy that you were here. Thank you. Anytime. If you want to do from Russia with love at some point, let me know. For sure, yeah. <laughs> I've got a whole theory about that one. Yes. Um, all right. Well, listeners, um, thanks for listening and uh, enjoy enjoy your day. Thank you. Take care.